This is You Can Adopt, a series which explores and debunks many of the most common misconceptions about adoption in England. You'll hear first-hand experiences from many different people involved in the adoption process, with each episode hosted by recognisable voices sharing their own experiences of adoption. To find out more and to begin your journey towards growing your family, please visit youcanadopt.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching You Can Adopt. Now, enjoy the episode. Please be aware before listening that this episode contains some aspects which may be difficult for some to listen to, around subjects such as self-harm, domestic violence and substance abuse. Hello, you're listening to the You Can Adopt podcast with me, Nikki Campbell. Now, in previous episodes, we've spoken to adoptive parents about adopting children with additional needs, older children, children of different ethnicities, same-sex adoption, and we've explored adopting as a result of fertility issues. Now, today, we are taking a different approach, talking to birth parents whose children have been adopted. Now, I've got experience in this area. I've been studying the issue for 59 years, having been adopted at a young age. It was a private adoption in Edinburgh in 19... Well, it might have been 1960 because I was born in 61 and the arrangement had been made before I was born. So basically, I was with my birth mother for nine days in Portobello by the sea in Edinburgh. And then the social worker came and took me to an intermediary dwelling, I guess. I think I was in a, a kind of home for three or four months. Then everything was checked through and I went home for the rest of my life. But in the middle bit, I, uh, on a journey of curiosity and just wanting to know who I was and who I might have been because I've all my life had this uh, feeling of being an imposter, not quite sure who I am, who I'm, who I might have been, who I was, who I should be. And so I traced my birth mother and she'd had a very damaged life. Um, she suffered from type one bipolar. I later find out I have type two bipolar. So that's a link and that's a connection. And uh, we didn't, I mean, she, she'd buried a lot of her life very, very deep because of the problems she'd had. And she had two babies adopted within 18 months of each other in Edinburgh in 1961, myself, my my birth half-sister. And these, these, of course, are very different times. Later on, I traced my, my birth father, which was also a very interesting experience. And uh, there's a lot more to it than that, but those are the basics. Um, so today we're welcoming Angela to uh, the podcast. Hi, Angela. Um, you're right. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for having me. Uh, sorry to have subjected to you to my life story there um <laughs> it's obviously it's quite long and quite involved but having you know met birth parents i mean those are very different times aren't they from now and i talk about a a private adoption and not really knowing anything although i was told i was adopted from an early age and it being a mystery being made into a brand new person if you like i mean it, it's very different now isn't it it is, yes. And it's different from my circumstances. But yes, I think, I mean, you're right. <laughs> Being adopted um, in a situation like that, when, whereas from my perspective, um, my children were removed by the local authority because they had concerns about my abilities to safeguard them. So it's it, it's a different, the circumstances around the adoption are different, but I would imagine that a lot of the issues that came about as a result of that adoption are actually very similar. Yeah. And also, I guess it's not that dissimilar from the point of view that I was adopted in the context of social stigma. It was completely unacceptable for a nurse, my mother in Dublin, to have a child and be a single mother. So in those circumstances, it it, it would have been impossible. And I guess others came to the judgment that in your circumstances, it would have been impossible. It must have felt brutal. It did, yes. And I think there's there's still an enormous social stigma around birth parents. In fact, I'm, I'm not even sure that the vast majority of the population even understand what a birth parent is. Mm-hmm. The, you know, it's this sort of this term, this label that we're given because I don't think we really know how else 
to describe ourselves. But I do know that, you know, there's a huge amount of, of guilt and shame and blame that, that goes around it. So I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to do this today to hopefully some change some of that perception. Yeah, it's a fascinating area to explore. And it's all too often, as you say, ignored. So I, I want to hear that life story. I inflicted mine on you, but you're not inflicting yours on mine at all because it's so important and absolutely fascinating. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you initially came into contact with social services. Basically, tell, tell me that story. Well, it's understandably not a particularly happy one, but it's also a particularly common one that we hear, I think, from a lot of birth families. I grew up in a really abusive household. I had a very physically violent father and a very mentally abusive mother. Um, I went through school being bullied. I had severe mental health problems. Um, I wasn't allowed to talk about anything that happened in the family home. So I then invented an entire life as a small child because it's all well and good saying don't talk about anything, but you're a child, you want to talk about things. So I, I made up all kinds of stories which were sort of ludicrously ridiculous and everybody realised very early on. Um, but nobody really took the time to try and understand why I was making up these stories or why I was behaving. What sort of stories? Tell me a little bit. Oh, I, I invented More. siblings that had died when I was younger. I invented middle names that I didn't have. I Just anything that would sort of give me that little bit of attention that I really craved that good attention because all I ever really seemed to get at home was negative attention. And so I was always sort of desperately trying to be to be popular, to be funny, to be clever and, and, and always going just that little bit over the top and, and taking it too far. And it, you know, it, it wasn't long before all of the children were sort of bullying me and laughing at me and, and sort of just generally ridiculing me to the point where it then sort of was like, life at home was miserable and then sadly life at school was miserable so it then just sort of became this vicious cycle of just life being generally miserable and unhappy and 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 also feeling you know my parents would just regularly tell me that everything was my fault I was worthless and I deserved all of all of this violence and all of these bad things that were happening to me and that's a really difficult thing to process when you're a small child you don't question that you know I loved my parents unconditionally irrespective of how they behaved towards me and I also didn't really understand that their behavior wasn't normal because I didn't have anything else to compare it to I thought everybody's parents sort of treated them badly and and every child felt like this I didn't actually question any of it it wasn't obviously until much later down the line when I started to realize that actually that wasn't normal and that, that what had happened wasn't right but sadly, it, it wasn't very long before. I mean, by the age of 11, I was self-harming. By 13, 14, I was a habitual drinker, drugs. I was then really badly exploited because I was just I was just extremely vulnerable and, and just not really aware of the risks and the dangers I was putting myself in. And it just generally wasn't a very happy time at all. And I sort of went on to have just just a string of really abusive and very unhealthy relationships. But quite simply because I didn't know that they weren't healthy or that they were abusive because they were very similar to what I'd seen growing up. I didn't question whether someone was treating me badly because everybody would always treated me badly and I didn't really think that that anything else, I deserved anything else. It wasn't really until I um, fell pregnant with my eldest son that everything really started to sort of fall into place and I really started to think actually come on you know you can't you can't bring a child into this life you know I I wasn't even functioning as a, an adult let alone as a parent and decided that maybe the time was to start trying to address some of these issues and, and try and sort myself out really in, in time for for becoming a parent and you know I was, I was very aware that I didn't know how to be a good parent I only knew how to be a bad parent and I was very aware that that was not the sort of parent that I wanted to be to my child I you know I was aware my child deserved better than than the sort of the treatment that I'd had and I mean I was I was fortunate in the sense I, I was homeless for quite a lot of my pregnancy and I had some abusive relationships and but eventually managed to find somewhere to live and began to really start to sort myself out, come back to college. And I managed to get some help from 
the local authority from a, a family support worker in my local authority because unfortunately I had a very difficult birth with my son and I very nearly died and I spent quite a long time in hospital and so I was kind of like okay I'm, I might actually need a little bit of physical help here um, there's things I can't do and there were things that I didn't I'd actually intended on going back to work and then suddenly I couldn't so I had this this lovely sort of social worker who came into my life who was very supportive and helped me I sorted out my finances I, I went back to work and and she discharged me and I thought everything was going really well but unfortunately what I hadn't realized in fact what nobody'd really realized was the painkillers that I'd been given as a result of the birth complications had become something of a crutch and I'd become addicted without actually realizing it and it just became a case of increasing the dosage more and more to just to deal with the pain but then it also I think became a way of dealing with with all of the emotions that I was really struggling with because it wasn't until I became a parent that I think I really started to understand how bad the abuse had been as a child because I'd sort of look at my son and think but how how could you how could you feel that way towards your own child how could you treat your own child like that and that sort of threw up all kinds of of traumas that I just really wasn't equipped to deal with at all and I sadly spent quite a long time sort of trying to mask those with drinking and and the painkillers and and just sort of trying I suppose really ignoring the fact that these problems were there and kind of hoping that if I just kept going maybe everything would be okay and I could sort of work my way through this and I mean I did okay for a while but unfortunately I then met the man that would eventually go on to almost pretty much destroy me and we went he was abusive but I say again in a way that I just didn't see and I sort of look back now and think, how could you not have, have seen the way his behaviour was impacting on you and your child? But at the time, I, I was just very vulnerable. And, you know, I kept thinking I was failing my child by by being a single mum, by not having anybody else around him, by not having anything else to give him, that I didn't really sort of stop to see that actually maybe I was enough on my own, that maybe he didn't need anybody else. But I just didn't have the confidence in myself at the time to really, truly believe that. And it was, it's quite scary, actually, when I look back at how quickly everything started to unravel and everything started to fall apart just by having this really negative influence. And it wasn't, I, mean, I think it was less than a year I'd lost pretty much everything. He'd alienated all friends, what little family I had. I'd lost my job. I was, he'd stolen all of my rent money. So I was evicted. I was homeless again. And suddenly How old were you? I was 23. So I was still extremely young. And I ended up. And how old up, was your son? About one and a half. So he was still very, very young. And we then ended up in a, in a council house that was in his name. And so I'd sort of gone from being this independent, young, working, single mum who looked like she had it all to to just having absolutely no one and nothing and living in this this horrendous house with a drug dealer one side and this violent alcoholic the other and just this awful environment and just desperately needing some kind of help and some kind of support. And I kept going back to my GP and just saying, who you know, she'd seen how hard I'd been trying and how I'd struggled, the severe mental health problems and just saying, you know, I don't want more tablets. I want I want a solution. I want a diagnosis. I want someone to actually take the time to, to tell me why all these things aren't right in my head and, you know, to try and explain it to me so that I could be more in control of it. But she just, every time she referred me somewhere, I'd get bounced back or we don't deal with self-harm or we can't see her while she's abusing substances. And and in the end, my GP, just out of sheer frustration, sort of said, well, you know, the local authority were really helpful last time. Maybe they could help again. And I sort of thought, oh, actually, I hadn't thought about that. I was given a social worker and unfortunately unlike the lovely support worker that I'd had the first time round she wasn't there wasn't any sort of kindness or compassion there it, everything was seen and I mean I can understand why everything was seen through a safeguarding lens everything was seen as you're a risk to your child rather than it being me saying well actually I'm aware that things aren't right and 
I'd like some help to actually be able to change the things that aren't right. It just became a case of, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't self-harm. It's dangerous. And me saying, yes, I know, but I need I need alternatives. I need other ways of coping. I need you to, to help me learn different ways of dealing with these emotions that I just don't understand and that I that I can't actually deal with. And it was it was quite scary, actually. It wasn't very long at all before I was in mental health crisis in hospital. And it was while I was lying in a hospital bed, I was asked to sign papers to say that um, my my child could be taken into foster care. And I was told it would be temporary, that it would just be for sort of a few days so that I could try and sort of get a grip on on what was going on, maybe get my meds to a level where I could I could cope properly. And that was the beginning of of the fight to to try and get my child back because he wasn't he wasn't returned to me after a few days. He I just kept being told, no, he can't come home because you haven't made the changes you need to make. But at the same time, there was nobody there to help me make those changes. So I was kind of to say I was at rock in a hard place is a bit of an understatement, really. Do you know, some of the story does resonate with the television programme that I do, Long Lost Family, although it's the dim and distant past. that You know, young girls, people who have terrible starts in life, terrible environments in which they grew up, unable to cope. It's a story. It's an old story. It's a new story, isn't it? And, you know, that emotional coercion um, is also an, an age-old story, but it's very specific. Yours very, very... Um, specific to more recent times. I think there's another similarity perhaps between you and me as well, between a lot of birth mothers who have been through what you've been through in your childhood and birth children who have lived through what I've lived through in that I spend a lot of my time wondering what my life would have been like had I grown up in a different environment. And I think it would have been so much worse. And you, perhaps, I, I don't want to assume anything, but spend time thinking how your life would have turned out if you'd grown up in a better environment, a happier home. I mean, the way you describe it, you didn't know any, you loved your parents unconditionally because you knew no difference. Yeah, completely. Uh, you knew nothing different. I was so powerful listening to you say that. But you know what I mean about you wonder if things would have turned out differently with a different context to your life. Oh, completely. I I had a, a wonderful um, aunt and uncle who lived very, very far away. And every time they'd come to visit, I used they were so unbelievably loving and supportive. And they still are. They're still in my life now. And I used to sort of wish, I used to sit there and just sort of think, why did I get the parents that I got? Why could I not have had them? You know, it, it just sort of seemed really unfair that the parents who were supposed to love me didn't. And then there was this sort of couple there who, and um, they were adopters as well. You know, they adopted my cousin. So there was always that sort of knowledge that wishing that I could have been that child that they'd, that they'd taken in and, and loved. And, and you're right, you do then spend that that time thinking, you know, could I have done things better? Could I have been different? But then you, I think you kind of also get to a point where you you realise that that's not actually doing you any favours, that you have to accept that this is the life that you were given and that you have to actually acknowledge that you can't you can't go back, you can't undo the damage that's been done. You can only try and and move forwards and and deal with that and live with that and try and do something with with the negativity that happened, which is which is what I try and do now. Mm. Do you think there is enough cognizance and recognition of what a birth mother has gone through to get to that point whereby the children are adopted or are, are, are fostered? No, I think sadly we seem to have a system that, and, and, and rightly so in one sense, sees everything through the eyes of the child. Everything's focused on the child. And it's that sort of lack of understanding of that birth mom and and I know I'm not alone because I work with other birth moms and I hear this story constantly and it's very specific around domestic violence we have a system that places the responsibility of protecting the children on the mom or the victim and so you find yourself in that horrendous situation of 
trying to protect your children and trying to hold on to your children at the same time as being systematically destroyed by a perpetrator who then actually goes on to use the system that's supposed to be protecting you as as a weapon. So you find yourself just completely torn. You know, my family had gone, my friends had gone, and my partner was just very slowly eroding any confidence I had as a person and as a parent. And I was just absolutely falling apart. And I was begging for proper mental health assessment. I just kept saying, please, you know, I know that there's something wrong with me, but I can't fix it if I don't know what's wrong. What were you using? It was heroin in the end. I went from taking what was cocodamol and codeine and then just slowly increased to the point where I needed it just to be able to get through the day. But so I sort of found myself in that horrible situation of being told, well, you can't have a mental health assessment until you're clean, but you can't, the the waiting list's 18 months. That's too long for your child to wait. Your child can't come home until you're clean. And you're just sort of sat there thinking, everything's out of my control. I can't do anything. And then circumstances changed dramatically because I found out I was pregnant with my second son. And the difference was was just unbelievable. I was instantly into drug and alcohol treatment because obviously the focus then wasn't on me. The focus was on the child. Everything was then done to make sure that that unborn baby was fine. There wasn't really any concern about me. It was to make sure that he was okay, which was brilliant in my case because it worked. Um, My partner walked out. He was adamant he didn't want to have a child. He left. I got into treatment. Within the second trimester of pregnancy, I got clean. I managed to make all of the changes I needed in the house. I didn't have this partner controlling me and taking all my money. How are you supposed to bond with an unborn baby when actually you don't know if when you give birth in hospital, they're going to take the baby away? And eventually it was four weeks before my second son was born when they actually decided that my eldest son could be returned home. He could come home. So I had four weeks to sort of, readjust to being mum again so we had to sort of almost try and find our way again in this four-week period before the chaos of a newborn would sort of enter the realm and and we'd be thrown into into a, a world that neither of us had ever been in before and I thought I was doing okay I was sort of getting a handle on it and then my partner came back and did his usual spiel of or my father walked out on me when I was young and I panicked and I'm sorry and I'm just frightened I'm not going to be a good dad and he had such an ability to be able to to use my past and my insecurities as a way to get what he wanted and and he just kept saying you know please let me be a father and you know my my child needs me and, and of course me being vulnerable and foolish believed him and took him back the birth of my second child was an absolute disaster because I was seen as a previous drug user because there was a note of social services on my maternity records the way the hospital treated me was awful I was stuck in a room at the end of a corridor I wasn't allowed pain relief I was just completely ignored and I kept up yes (laughs) I was given some paracetamol and a cup of tea but they wouldn't let me have anything else um and why not because I was an addict you're not you're not actually seen as a human being once something like that's on your record can I yeah can I just say something the the this is so so, um much of it is just so chilling and telling and profoundly moving but the work I do at the moment um documentary work deals with a lot of birth mothers in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s Uh, who were, uh, particularly the 60s and 70s, we see them as being different times, brutal times, judgmental times with judgmental attitudes. And we always think, oh, well, it wouldn't happen now. But those those same judgments, that same finger pointing, that same occupation of the moral high ground and looking down on somebody else – it's been reincarnated. It's still, it's still going. That's the thing that's really struck me about your story. It's still going on. It's still happening, albeit in different forms and for different reasons. But that very unattractive part of the human condition whereby I'm better than you still pertains in your circumstance and you suffered from it in horrible ways. Almost definitely. Because I'd suffered 
catastrophic complications with my first son, I was terrified. And I kept saying to them, look, I'm really scared this is going to go wrong again. You know, I nearly died the first time round. And I didn't really know because I'd had a I had an emergency cesarean with my first son. So I didn't really understand what was going on. And I kept saying to them, I don't feel well, I don't feel well. And they just kept ignoring me. So I just was sort of lying there screaming for someone to help me. And I was just, you know, in this horrendous situation where they shoved some gas and air into my mouth. And then my little boy was born. So that that was my experience of my son being born. And I just, I just sat there sort of on my own with this little baby in complete shock, not really knowing what to do or what was going on. And within a couple of hours, my partner arrived at the hospital. Actually, he threw me off the bed, made me sit in the chair and actually had a nap because he said he'd had a stressful evening. And was I was then told, look, I need money. It's gyro day. You're going to have to discharge yourself. And... I did as I was told. I was just wandering around in shock. So within four hours of having given birth, I was standing in a post office queue, sort of clinging onto the railings, um, cashing a gyro because he needed money and I was doing as I was told. And unfortunately, that things carried on in that vein. My little boy had colic. I didn't understand what colic was. My eldest son had been a really good sleeper, a really good eater. I hadn't had any problems with him. And then suddenly I had this really difficult baby who just cried constantly, all night, all day. And I had no, I didn't know how to make him stop. And everybody's focus was so much on me and my mental health and the way I was coping that all of these things were being ignored. So I'd say, oh, well, he needs to be, he, he settles if he's swaddled really tightly. And then they kept saying, oh, you can't, you can't swaddle him like that. He'll get too hot. And then I tell, well, he, he stops crying if I pick him up. Oh, you, you have to let him learn to self-settle. So I was getting all of these sort of bits of information thrown at me. And then I had a partner who just, he hated the noise of the baby crying. So he just, he would shout, he would throw things, he'd be slamming doors. So I'd be sort of desperately trying to, to keep this, tiny little baby asleep and calm was he the baby's father yes right did he have any paternal affection emotion sense of responsibility at all no none whatsoever it was it, it just wasn't in him to have that kind of emotion i don't think he had that kind of emotion for another person at all he was a narcissist through and through everything was about him and what he needed but the problem was i had these social workers who were just hovering, watching my every move. And I, they were insisting that I had to get my eldest son to nursery on time. I had to be there whenever they turned up. They could do unannounced visits. They could basically do whatever they wanted to check that I was doing everything that I should. And I start, But I started to get quite unwell. And I kept going back to the doctors and just saying, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not not well I'm, I'm still bleeding I feel really unwell I have a fever and again I was ignored but at the same time still being expected to care for the baby and take my eldest son to nursery can I just ask were you were you using as well at this point no at that point I wasn't but I did end up not long after that getting to the situation where it was just like well I, I genuinely don't know what else to do I can't physically function I was in so much pain so I started using drugs again just so that I could, in the beginning, it was like, well, if I just use this, I can get my son to nursery, I can do the basics. You know, it wasn't like I was sort of sat spaced out on a sofa. It was genuinely, this is pain relief. This is actually getting me through the days. And it got to the point where my son was six weeks old and I hemorrhaged and was rushed into hospital. And it turned out that in the chaos of the birth, they'd left part of the placenta behind. So for six weeks, this had been rotting and I was admitted with sepsis. They said another 48 hours and I just wouldn't have made it. They couldn't understand how I was even still functioning, let alone still managing to feed my child and do the shopping and get my child to nursery and doing all of these other things. So I was sort of whisked into hospital and stuck on drips with antibiotics to try and sort of save my life, basically. 
Um, at which point my partner phoned the hospital and said, come home or I put the kids in care. And I couldn't do that to my little boy. He'd spent such a long time begging me to never send him away again. He used to cry every night at bedtime. Please don't send me away again, mum, please. And I used to promise him I won't. I promise I won't let anyone take you away. So I, I had no choice. I had to go home. So the hospital wouldn't discharge me, but I disconnected all my machines and got the bus home. Um, they sent medication with me once they realised I wasn't going anywhere, but was told you have to get 100% bed rest, the slightest thing. If she bleeds again, she'll die. There's nothing we're going to be able to do. And within hours of getting home, my husband, my partner, sorry, realised that I wasn't going to be able to look after the baby. So he dragged me out of bed by my hair, threw me down the stairs, um, beat me black and blue, telling me to make the effing baby stop. Um, I ran out into the street. I was banging on neighbours' doors, screaming for help, and they were just closing the curtains and locking the doors. And there was no one there. He was beating me with pieces of wood. Eventually, I managed to get to the telephone to phone the police, and, and he ran away. So I went to the police, took a statement. I was sent to hospital. I had fractured ribs, broken thumb. And obviously, by some miracle, I hadn't started bleeding again, but I was just barely functioning. Um, I went from there to court to get a restraining order and when I got home there was two social workers waiting and they basically just said oh your children are now on the at-risk register because you didn't protect them from witnessing you being almost murdered <laughs> um, and I was forced to sign something that said I promised to keep him away from the children and if I didn't they would um, take them away and of course I assumed oh well hang on you know I've been to the police <laughs> I've got a restraining order this should be pretty simple I just he just isn't allowed anywhere near me there was a power of arrest on the restraining order but unfortunately I was later to find out that's not really how it works um the police couldn't find him so they didn't arrest him he just used to he still had a key because obviously it was his house and when I said could you take the key off him no we can't take the key it's his house so um he used to let himself in in the middle of the night so I'd wake up in the morning and he'd just randomly be in the house and he would say, give me all the money you've got or I'll tell social services I've been here. I've hidden things so I can tell the social services where to find them. And so that was that then became my life for the next almost four weeks of me trying to stay alive and keep my children in nursery and look after them and try and avoid anybody finding out that my partner was just doing whatever he wanted because I couldn't physically stop him. And in the end, I walked into social services and just, I remember sitting on the floor, just sobbing, saying, I, ca I can't, I can't stop him. You have to help me. Somebody has to help me do this. And the following morning, they removed my son from nursery and they took my 10-week-old baby from my home and they never came home again. What would you have done if you were them? Taken me and my children and put me somewhere safe, somewhere where I... I could be cared for somewhere where I could be educated to know that this was domestic abuse, which I didn't understand. Somewhere where I could get treatment for addiction, somewhere where I could learn to understand that the mental health problems I had were trauma-based, that there wasn't actually anything fundamentally wrong with me, but that the programming I received as a child had done an enormous amount of damage and that I needed some actual proper help to be able to to understand that and find a way through it. Yeah. So when and how did you turn your life around? It took it took it took quite a long time. Later that year on New Year's Eve they told me that the children were never coming home. They finally the court ordered a psychiatric assessment finally after I'd been sort of begging for one for ages. Um that report said I needed 18 months of of therapy so I thought brilliant that's not very long you know the children are settled we'll be fine um new year's eve they told me actually no that's that's not within the children's time scale so they're never coming home they're being adopted um no one was with me at the time what was it like hearing those words it was just uh, before I received that report I'd kind of already got to, to the came to the conclusion that I was never ever going to get my children back then I read that report and I kind of had hope 
because I, th- I was expecting that report to come back and say, this woman is just clinically insane. She's never, ever going to be able to function. And because that's what I was being told by my partner. So to actually have this sort of bit of hope that said, oh, I just need some therapy. And I thought, oh, I can do that. that. That's brilliant. So I sort of, when they asked me to go in on New Year's Eve, I'd actually gone in there with some sort of hope, actually thinking, oh, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is a possibility. And so when I... When I walked out, I just, I just didn't, hadn't expected that. And it just completely destroyed the tiny little bit of hope that I had left. So I then went home, sort of, you know, my trying to sort of tell my partner what, what had happened and how I just wanted to die. And he was just sort of like, well, you need to die before the children go because then it'll be easier for them to love their new parents. But if you're still alive, it, they're going to be a mess and think think of what it's going to do to them psychologically. So I then ended up in the situation where I genuinely believed that maybe if I was dead, they it would be easier for them. So I spent the next eight weeks planning my own death, planning it around my birthday so that it, that was a better day for them. And to sort of look back, it, it's absolutely terrifying to think how vulnerable and alone I was and how there was just all of these professionals around me armed with all of this information yet none of them were doing anything to 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 make sure that that I was okay that I was supported it because as I say I wasn't I wasn't mum anymore I didn't matter anymore I wasn't in the plan so um so yeah on my my 29th birthday I took a massive overdose and my partner then went out and emptied my bank account and sold all my possessions. But fortunately, a neighbour became suspicious and managed to phone an ambulance. And I was um, admitted to intensive care where I spent quite a long time. And it was actually a nurse. The first sort of turning point came from a nurse in intensive care. Because my partner had stolen all my stuff, he'd also stolen my mobile phone. So I didn't have any numbers. So I didn't, I couldn't tell anybody that I was in intensive care. They they knew I was dying, but there was no one to tell. And this, so the nurses were absolute angels and they would take it in turns to sit with me. It, some of them stayed on after their shifts just so that I, you know, because I was dying and they didn't want me to die alone. And this lovely nurse was sort of asking me, why, why, why do you just, because I was refusing treatment. I was just like, just please, I'm done. And I'd explained, you know, I, my children, I, I can't, I can't live without them. And she'd said that her husband had taken her children many years ago, taken them to America, and she'd never seen them again. And I just sort of couldn't get, I was sort of like, but how? How are you still functioning? How are you still doing everything? And she said, because I know at some point my children are going to look for me. It might not be next year, it might not be the year after, it might be 10 years from now. But I don't want them to find the woman that they'll have been told exists. I don't want them to find this wreck that he will have told them about. I want them to find someone successful, strong, independent. And and she said, and that's what your children need. Just because you're not with them doesn't mean they don't they won't ever need you again. And I started to think, well, actually, maybe she's got a point here. Maybe maybe that, you know, maybe I can do this. Maybe I should do this. So that was the point when I said, actually, do you know what? I'm gonna fight. I, I'm, I am going to get better and ironically that was the point when they gave me six hours to live and I just sort of laughed I just sort of thought you know this is just life's last cruel blow the one point when I've actually decided I might have a future and I just said actually no I'm not I'm not dying I'm going to see my children and the doctors all sort of very kindly tried to tell me that I was wrong but um, almost three weeks later I walked out of hospital and into woman's refuge. So I proved that I'm particularly stubborn <laughs> and strong. And, and I was determined that that was it. I was actually going to to make this work. And um, unfortunately, I then found out that the local authority were allowing my ex-partner to testify against me at the final hearing. So I was told if I didn't want to face him in court, I should sign the papers to say that the children could be adopted. That's astonishing. I, just and my my solicitor, God love her, she's still a very good friend of mine, actually said, I'm going to write down in the files that I'm advising you to sign the papers so that in the future you can blame me. You won't have to carry that blame yourself. And I did. I remember signing the letter and putting it in the fax machine, machine in the refuge and just 
absolutely hating myself. But at the same time, knowing that I didn't have anything left in me, I didn't have a fight in me. And they also told me that if I agreed to the adoption, I, I could help choose the adopters. I could be part of the process. I'd get longer with them. I could say a proper goodbye. I could do a proper handover. So all of these things were promised. But then I was told, but actually, if you don't, you're going to go to court on Monday and you're never going to see them again. So I thought, well, actually, this is this is the right thing to do. And then two weeks later, they changed their minds and they gave me another two weeks. And I said, in two weeks time, you say goodbye. So I had two weeks to prepare myself, but more importantly, two weeks to prepare my son, who by this point was five, for the fact that I was going to have to say goodbye to him. And as it turned out, he was the one who ended up looking after me because when I turned up to see him, they'd already told him. And he made me sit down and he held my hands and he, he tried to explain to me that he had to leave, but that I would be okay. And I just remember being so angry that at five, he was having to do that and that he was being put through that. It just seemed so grossly unfair. But I was also incredibly proud of how well he sort of, he dealt with it and, and of how compassionate he was to me. He understood that I was the one that was going to be left behind and he cared about that. And then that was it. Two weeks later, 45 minutes in a dirty conference room, sat on the floor trying to fit the rest of our lives into the next 45 minutes. And the only thing that kept me going was the fact that they all throughout this goodbye, they kept saying, um, you can write, you can write letters, you can have what's called letterbox contact. So I kept thinking, okay, okay, that's that's what I've got. That's what I've got to focus on. This isn't the end. This is the last time you can physically see him, but it's not it's not the last time you can talk to him. And at the end of it, I remember carrying him to the car. And obviously, you'll know yourself when you have children. Once they get to five, they're far too grown up to be carried. But he asked me to carry him. And so I had sort of him in one arm and I was trying to carry a sort of 18-month-old toddler under the other arm and took them to this car, strapped them in and kissed goodbye. And I remember my youngest sort of waving because obviously he had no concept. He was just like, oh, this is the nice lady we see three times a week and she gives us treats. And he had no concept of who I was, but my eldest obviously did. And um, they kept telling me, don't cry, don't cry. Make it as happy and positive experience for them as possible. And in the end, I just thought, no, so that that's not fair. I cannot have my son think that I'm happy that he's leaving. So we sat and we cried and we sang songs and we shared stories. And and then that was it. And they drove away and they were gone. And the only thing that kept me going was the fact that I kept thinking I can write. So the last thing I said when I put him in the car was, you know, mum loves you. And mum will write really, really soon. You know, I won't forget. I'll write. And that was it. They were gone. And then a few weeks later, I contacted the local authority to know, to find out, you know, how, how does this work? What do I do? How do I write letters? And was told, actually, letterboxes at the discretion of the adopters and your children don't have any adopters as yet, so you can't write. And that was it. I was just destroyed. I thought, you've made me break my last promise. He's going to think that I don't care. He won't know no one, you know, I've got no, that was it. He was gone. I had no way of speaking to him at all. And I just, I plummeted and my partner found me. I took him back. I just, I gave up. I just thought at that point, right, that's it. You know, what does it matter now? And <laughs> luckily my social, my solicitor didn't give up. And she referred me to a charity called After Adoption. And a wonderful lady called Norma got in touch. And she, it took a while. I think it took a good six months of her debt just, persistently contacting me for me to actually start to engage with it but she was a social worker I didn't want to know I didn't care anymore I didn't trust anyone and she kept saying but I can help I can help you get the letters and by that point I just sort of I just couldn't believe anymore I'd been let down too many times and eventually she persuaded me to, to let her in and we started talking and that's when I really started to understand that I wasn't alone that actually this was happening to mothers all over the country, that mine wasn't an isolated case. And that really started to sort of help me understand that actually 
not all of everything that had happened was my fault. And she kept saying, I'm going to fight for, for letterbox. And I kept saying, well, you know, that's great, but I, I can't. I just, I can't risk being let down again. And she did it. It was almost two and a half years after they'd gone. But then I, I got a letter and through the post from, and it was handwritten by my son. And there was photos, but the words were lovely, but the photos, they were happy. They were happy. They were healthy. They were safe. They were obviously loved. They were off having this wonderful adventure. And that was the point where I started to think, maybe I'm allowed to be happy. Maybe I'm allowed to have something of a life. And, you know, Norma was fiercely trying to get me to understand that I deserved better than my partner, that I deserved better than what had been done to me. And she started asking me to speak to other mums, to speak to social workers. And she asked me to go to a conference with her in in Wales. And I sort of agreed because it was kind of like, you know, she'd given me back everything. So she could have asked me to walk to the moon and I'd have given it a go. So I sort of went along to this conference with her, never having been to a conference, let alone spoken at one before. And it was at this conference that I met Bridget, who was from the family rights group who I work with now. And she was, you know, I, I I work for a charity and we help families in this situation. Will you, would you help us in the same way that you're helping after adoption? And I don't think I really understood the significance of, of that meeting um, until, well, until things in my life really started to change. And it was a different conference when I came home and my partner was very much, oh, you've come back from there thinking you're better than me. And I actually said, actually, I've come back from there knowing that I deserve better than you. And I left and he just wouldn't let me go. So in the end, I packed two bags and I ran. And I ran 300 miles away. And I was homeless for a while. Things weren't great for a while. And then I managed to find a place to live. And I met my landlady's son. And my landlady's son is now my husband and we've been together for 13 years. So it that was sort of the beginning of the really starting to change things and, and turn things around. And I was still drinking then, but um, I got clean two years after the boys went and I decided to do it on New Year's Eve because I thought they'd ruined New Year's Eve for me. And I decided that maybe I should claim that back and that it was important for me on that day every year, not just to think about what I'd lost, but to sort of think about what I'd succeeded in or, and, and what I'd achieved. And, you know, life just went on from there and letterbox continued until my children were teenagers and then they started to, to struggle and had issues around identity. But I'd built up such a good relationship with their adoptive parents, especially their mum that I was able to sort of say, actually, if they don't want to write, that's fine. This has never been about me keeping them. This has been about me being a part of their lives if they want me to be. But actually, if what they need is for me to back off, then that then that's what I'll do. You know, this is this has all I ever cared about was that they came out of this as unscathed and as undamaged as was physically possible. I just didn't want them to have to face up to the sort of issues that I'd had to face. Tell me about their adoptive parents. Oh, God. It's it's actually quite difficult to explain how much you can love someone that you've never met. If I could have sat down and someone had said to me, right, write on a piece of paper the sort of parents you would choose for your children if you can't parent them, I couldn't have done as good a job as they have. They are just the most wonderful human beings who they never ever tried to to push me away they never ever tried to pretend that I didn't exist they always tried to keep me a part of it and whenever I got letterbox contact I'd always get a letter from the boys written by them which would be telling me all of the sort of things that a child would tell you but then I'd get what I used to always call the mum letter which would be telling me all of the things that as a mum I really wanted to know how their health was, how they were getting on at school. Did they have any problems? You know, all of the stuff that I just, I didn't know and that I needed to know. And that, so that I was then able to talk about them in the present. Because when you haven't seen your children for 10 years, 
being able to say, my son currently likes football is a really important thing to be able to do because you genuinely don't know that. And in the beginning, I was always so ashamed of talking about them and talking about what had happened because I thought, oh, people are just going to judge. And then I thought, but actually, I'm just making the stigma worse. If I don't talk about them, if I don't tell people what happened, then people's attitudes aren't going to change. People are still going to think, just as I did before I got involved in the system, all of these preconceived notions that I had in my mind about what sort of person would have their children taken away and permanently removed, that actually I had something of a responsibility to try and change that myself. And having been given the voice that I'd been given by the charities that I was working with, I thought, actually, you know, I have to do something about this. So it got to a point where the letterbox had kind of stopped. But I was I was okay with that. I'd sort of said, right, okay, you know, if, if that's what they need. And then we made, my husband and I made the decision to to have a child, which is just absolutely terrifying because you know you're then putting yourself back into that system. You know that they're going to want to assess you. You know that they were going to want to check that, that you're not a risk. And you know that you've got to trust a system that failed you. And that's really, really, really terrifying. And the, despite the fact that I had, you know, these charities behind me and, you know, I was well known for the work that I was doing, it was still, my husband always says it's the most terrifying thing he's ever been through in his life. Having someone sit there and just ask you question after question after question, being interrogated and, and not knowing whether they're going to say at the end of it, yes, you're fine or no. And you can't do any of that until you're pregnant. And in contrast to the past, what kind of support has your husband been? Oh, my husband's been a wonderful support. Um, the thing that I didn't acknowledge until we actually got together was I didn't, I'd been through sort of refuges and I'd done a lot of work around domestic violence, but I hadn't really understood how bad the abuse was until I was suddenly with someone who wasn't abusive. When I was with someone who was loving and watching my reaction to situations and you know it was so hard for him in the beginning because you know he'd just move too quickly and I'd flinch or he'd slam a door and I'd panic and it took such a long time and he, he knew that he couldn't do anything to fix that he knew that that was something that I was gonna have to fix myself and obviously when we first met I was still drinking because I just didn't know what else to do with with the grief there just wasn't anywhere to put it there was there's no counseling for birth mums there's no support for birth mums you know it's just something you have to go through on your own but he we moved to a little cottage in the middle of nowhere and he went out to work and I didn't have to and he just sort of took all of the pressure off and and just looked after me which was something that nobody'd ever done nobody I'd always had to fight for myself and depend on myself and look after myself and suddenly I, I just didn't have to all I had to do was make it through the day without having a drink and I've now been sober for just over 10 years so you know he he helped in that sense because he just allowed me to talk and the work that I was doing with the family rights group as well suddenly being able to use these horrendously negative and traumatic experiences to try and change perceptions because back then I didn't I didn't have any dreams of changing the system I just had the hope that maybe one social worker hearing my story would actually work differently with someone in that situation and and obviously now to get to the stage where I'm at now where there just aren't enough hours in the day to fit the amount of work in because the system is now finally starting to acknowledge that this isn't right and this isn't fair and we can't keep doing this to families but yeah, no, he has been. What is it? What isn't? What what specifically is not is not fair? Just explain that. Two things, I think. The two main things that I focus on a lot are the way we treat victims of domestic violence, and the way we're not understanding trauma. We're not understanding that that parents who have been through traumatic experiences need 
therapeutic support, not surveillance, and that there's a very big difference between those, and that someone whose life is a mess doesn't need to be told their life is a mess. <laughs> they need to be told how they can change that, and they need to be given steps out of the situation, not just to be... We have a system that's very problem-focused, and I'd quite like to see it more solution-focused. And the other big thing that I really would like to see change is proper post-adoption support for everyone, not just for birth parents, for for the children, for the adopters, for the wider family, just so that we can actually, because at the minute we're all just left to find our way through the system. And we have a system as well that seems to pit the needs of one sibling against another, which was really highlighted just shortly before Christmas last year. Because as I'd said, Postbox had broken down. My eldest son had turned 18, four and a bit years ago, and I'd wrote saying, look, I know he's 18 and I know I could contact him, but I'm not going to because I respect that this is his decision, but I'll always be here and I'll be waiting. And so then I've had sort of the last four and a half years, my daughter, you know, when will I ever see my brothers and me saying, oh, you know, this has to be their decision. And then on the 16th of December last year, I got an email from a social worker saying, we've received a letter from one of your sons um, and they would like to speak to you. What was that like? It was uh, my poor little girl. She had no idea what was going on because I was just in a heap on the floor in tears trying to speak to the social worker and trying to tell her, it's your brother, it's your brother. He, he, he wants to talk to us. And I, she said on you know here's an email address I just sort of sent an email saying you know hello (laughs) we can you don't have to call me mum we can take this at your pace we can do whatever we need to you know because I just I thought as the parent maybe I should try and sort of set some ground rules if you like to make it as easy as possible and then I just got an email that just said hi mum this has been a long time coming and 48 hours later we were facetiming And I found out he'd been trying to speak to me for four and a half years, but the local authority wouldn't give him my contact details because my, his younger brother wasn't 18. He must have remembered the time when he sat down with you when he was five years old and made, tried to make things easier for you. He did. He must have remembered that. Did he remember? We do. And we've said that often, you know, because we had that relationship before he always wanted So I'd spent the last four and a half years thinking he didn't want to know. And he'd spent the last four and a half years thinking that I didn't want to. But what had happened was he'd actually, just after repeatedly going back to the local authority and not getting anywhere, um, his adoptive mum had said, right, come on, we'll find her together. And they sat down and because of the work that I'd been doing and I'd been sort of telling him bits and pieces over the years in letters, they just sat down with Google. And they found me and he then went through all of the work that I'd done and seen vlogs and blogs and videos and everything that I'd been doing. And armed with this information, I'd gone back to the local authority and just basically said, you put us in touch now. Otherwise, I'm going to have to do it on social media and that's not right. He must have, he must have seen the stuff you're doing and thought, my birth mother is uh, some, some incredible woman. It was it was unbelievable. He, you know, he sat there, and obviously, when he when we FaceTimed, I didn't know any of this. I thought that he was in the same position that I was, where we were just starting our journey. I had no idea he'd already started this journey four and a half years previously. And and poor man, you know, you think in your head of what this this meeting's going to be like and and what's going to happen. And he just got this sort of puffy-eyed woman who'd cried for 48 hours straight who just sat there like a gaping goldfish because I just couldn't part of me couldn't take in the fact that it was actually him and he was real and this was really happening and then the other half of me couldn't take in the fact that he'd been looking for me for all this time and then he you know he said that he'd seen all of the work that I'd done and and he was so proud of me and it was just my husband says he's no idea how he wasn't just sobbing in the background because it was just that that moment was just, you know, I did all of that work for all of those years thinking it was helping other people. And I had never for a second thought that it would actually, that would be what it would be that would bring him him back to me. And then the next day was the most magical because that was when my daughter got to meet her brother. 
face to face this brother who she's idolized who she'd never met who she's spent her entire life asking about and and there they were oh it was it was wonderful luckily my eldest son works with young children so he's very good with children and he's just at the age of 22 I mean you're looking back to when we were talking earlier about the fact that I was 23 and how young and vulnerable I was and there he is at 22 and he's just outstandingly mature and responsible and and together young man it really is absolutely amazing to to have spent all this time worrying about what impact this was going to have on him to see him be so together and and okay and mentally well is just it's just wonderful so did the right thing did the right thing happen was that adoption the right thing to happen oh at the time that it happened I don't think there was any other choice I don't think the situation that I was in had got to the point where I just wasn't able to cope anymore and the one thing I've never ever doubted throughout this was that what was done in the end you know was right for them yeah they've had an absolutely wonderful life and we my son and I were talking about this just the other day when he said you know we're the lucky ones because it all worked out okay for us I'm okay you know and I also ever since my daughter was born that changes your perspective because I can't ever wish to now turn the clock back because then she wouldn't exist and that's just not something I could ever wish for so you know and and especially the bit about finding out that he'd spent such a long time looking for me and then he just said he said you know maybe that was for the best maybe I wasn't mature enough back then to deal with it like I am now and so, you know, so- what what about what about um just now another couple of questions to get in it's amazing and what about his adoptive parents how are they and how have they been with your ongoing relationship with your son Oh, they've been wonderfully supportive because obviously because he's only just come back into my life we do spend quite a lot of time facetiming and messaging and because we've got a long time to catch up for and he'd sort he'd gone out for for dinner with the family a couple of weeks ago and sort of had to apologize to his mum because he hadn't spoken to us since Christmas because he'd been really busy but of course obviously he spent all of that time talking to me but he said, you know, she was cool about it. She understands that. But she's always, throughout the years, she's always called them. She's Whenever she used to write to me, she used to say, you'd be so proud of your boys. And I used to think that was such a selfless thing to do and to say. And I used to try and imagine what it must feel like. For the rest of the year, you're just mum. These are your children. But then you have to sit down and you have to reopen this wound and you have to acknowledge that there's somebody else out there that's also mum. And, you know, she's she's the way she's dealt with it and for the fact knowing that she helped him find me you know and my youngest son is actually 18 this weekend and I've written exactly the same letter as I did when my elder son turned 18 which is saying you know this is his journey he did we didn't have that existing relationship before there's no pressure I'm here if he ever wants to speak to me but at the same time if what it takes for him to go on to lead a happy, healthy life is to just not speak to me, then equally that's okay. He cannot, whatever happened, the complete innocence in all of this are the children and the adopters. They didn't do anything wrong. They had no control over anything that happened and they must be okay. But the one thing I have actually said in the letter is, you know, if you ever did want to to speak or to connect, because I'd love at some point to just be able to thank her properly. Although I'm not sure I could ever find even remotely the right words to do it, but I would just like to be able to thank her for 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 being the mum that I couldn't or wasn't allowed to be because she's done an absolutely outstanding job. And will you meet your other son? I don't know. That's his decision. And I know that he's supported to be able to make the decision that's that's right for him. Whereas now, because I'm in touch with my eldest son, at the minute that link is enough, I know that he's okay, I know that he's safe. I don't ask questions, I don't pry because I don't feel like that's my place to. But he will say, oh, I saw him last week or oh, we did such and such. And that, just knowing that he's actually just, he's fine. But, but the great thing is, and the wonderful thing is, which is more often than not the case and is has to be the, 
uh, imperative. They were they were adopted as siblings. They're together as siblings. But listen, finally, um, what advice would you give birth parents who are struggling after having their children adopted? Just don't ever give up. Don't ever stop thinking that you have something to offer them. You know, you may not, you may no longer be your child's primary caregiver, but that doesn't mean to say that you haven't got anything to offer them. I mean, no child has ever suffered by being told that they're loved and that they're missed. And, you know, just hopefully hearing everything I've said today shows that, you know, even the saddest of stories can can have a happy ending. There is there is a life beyond this and there is a way through it. And it's a very really difficult path that they're about to take. But it's not it's not a journey that they have to take on their own. There are others out there who've been through the same and they can get through this. There is light at the end of the tunnel. It's a, a, an amazing story. I hear a lot of stories, life stories. That was uh, that's quite something amazing, Angela. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks for listening to this episode of You Can Adopt. Listen out for more new episodes coming up. And if you haven't already, check out the first six episodes that cover many different and interesting stories from adoptive families. For more information and to take the first step towards growing your family, visit youcanadopt.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching You Can Adopt.